All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning, and it's Easter Sunday, so we're going to be taking a passage from the gospel that um, tells us the story of the resurrection, and uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 16 uh, this morning, verses 1 through 8. And you can follow on the slide, or you can open up your own Bible and follow along, and I'll go ahead and read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 for us. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray before we dive into God's word. Uh, Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for gathering us here to worship you on this Easter Sunday. And whether we're coming before you here as believers or non-believers, as seekers or skeptics, uh, we thank you that your word is sufficient to speak to all of us and that you will address uh, each of us according to our needs through your word. And I pray that you will have that uh, ministry done here through your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Mark's gospel is interesting. Uh, it, it's one of the earliest accounts, and most historians date it to the mid-50s AD, only about 20 years after Jesus' um, life. And that's when the eyewitnesses uh, of Jesus' time and day are, are still alive. And that's worth noting because it's therefore extremely unlikely Uh, that these events and these places and these people were legendary uh, because everything can be fact-checked by the eyewitnesses who survived these events and these um, people. To give you an example um, as illustration, even today, one of the reasons why it's so hard to deny historical events like the Holocaust or other tragic things that happened during World War II, whether it's in Korea or in China, um, is because we have survivors. (laughs) We have eyewitnesses who have lived through that time. And there's a whole generation of people who are testifying to it. And therefore, no matter how people may, you know, twist the history textbook to say otherwise, the eyewitnesses would say, that's not how things went down and and correct that. Interesting thing is, to this day, there's absolutely no record whatsoever contradicting the narratives that came from the apostles. No eyewitnesses coming forward saying, no, that's not how that went down after reading the Gospels, even though they were written during uh, the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And that's significant. This makes Mark and the Gospels a very historically uh, reliable text. But here's the next question we have to ask. Even if the account is written in a historically reliable way, and let's say passes all the the academic rigor uh, in the history department, does that give us enough rational basis to believe the resurrection took place? Okay. 
In other words, can I believe in the resurrection and still be counted as a, a rational person, not a crazy person? I think so. And, and not only that, I think the resurrection account gives us a lot of hope in life as well. Hope to seek after this Jesus, even now. And even he even sends us out into the world to live in the world in a meaningful way. In a meaningful way that really no other philosophy or religion can, can offer us. So here are the three points I want to share with you today. How the resurrection account gives us a rational basis to believe in Jesus. A hopeful basis to seek after Jesus and a meaningful basis to live for Jesus, okay? And these three points, in a way, answers the, the question of the title today. Why believe in the resurrection? Because it's rational, hopeful, and meaningful to believe in the resurrection, all right? So first, the rational basis to believe. Here's the principle. The rational basis for believing in a historical event depends on how well it explains the historical data. Okay, so if, if the resurrection rationally explains the historical data, then it's rational to believe in the resurrection as a historical event. Um, so, however, right, if you, if you have some prior commitments coming into this that keep you from accepting whatever might be the most rational explanation for the historical data, then you have to acknowledge at that point, okay, I'm not, I'm not motivated by reason, I'm motivated by prior commitments. Right, so that's the challenge. Examine the data and see if you can find a more rational explanation for it than the resurrection. Then, then you don't have to give the resurrection another look. Here are the four pieces of historical data that virtually no historian disagrees with, both Christian and secular um, historians. One, Jesus was crucified. Okay, let me start with that. Jesus really died by crucifixion. Uh, notice in our passage in verse six, it says, he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Uh, everything about the account of Jesus' crucifixion in the Bible aligns with Roman records, Jewish records of, of the crucifixion. Even Josephus, who was a, a credible non-Christian historian during the first century, records about Jesus, identifies Jesus as the brother of James, a wise teacher, quote, who was beaten in his naked body with scourges, and then crucified by Pilate, the Roman uh, governor. So Jesus' death, death by crucifixion is an undeniable uh, historical fact. And why is that significant? It rules out the theory, which is out there, that says Jesus didn't really die. Uh, he was simply arrested and tortured, then released, and his disciples mistakenly thought he resurrected from the dead. That theory is ruled out. Why? It's not historical. All the historical data contradicts that theory. Jesus died by crucifixion. That's the first piece of historical data. Second, his tomb was empty. His tomb was found empty. Verse 6 says, he has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, and that's the tomb. He's not here. Right? The angel's pointing to the tomb that's now empty. And I'm not going to forget the angel for a moment, okay? That sounds <laughs> too supernatural for... For some of y'all, okay? Forget the angel for a moment, all right? Let's look at the, let's consider the empty tomb. Uh, the Roman authorities, and this is, this is a, a well-known fact, during this time had access to the tombs of high-profile prisoners and, and criminals. And that uh, the disciples would somehow go and, and steal the body and overcome the, the soldiers while actually they were 
they betrayed Jesus and were hiding is, is kind of outlandish. It's, it's, a, it's a very big of a stretch. Um, the, the quickest way to disprove the disciples' claim that Jesus resurrected would have been to guard the tomb and when they go around claiming that Jesus is resurrected, show the body and say, here's the dead body of Jesus. Stop claiming that he's risen again. That, that would have put the whole thing to bed. But instead, they tell this strange story that while the soldiers were asleep at the entrance of the tomb, um, the disciples came and without making a single sound, rolled away the giant rock in front of blocking the tomb, opened the tomb right before the soldiers, took the time to unwrap him from the linen cloths and took off with Jesus' body. Okay. And, and that's been the story that's been circulating. And, and in Matthew's gospel, it tells us the soldiers were paid off by the, by the Roman officials to tell that story. And it's all very outlandish, and it's all really big of a stretch. But what's interesting about that is it confirms the fact the tomb is empty. Right? The, the, when they keep reiterating, they stole the body, they stole the body, they stole the body, they're reiterating the tomb is empty, the tomb is empty, the tomb is empty. And that's one very crucial um, fact. And just hang on to that for a moment, that the claim is, that G the disciples supposedly stole the dead body of, of Jesus. Okay, let's move on to number three. The first eyewitnesses were women. Okay, it says in verse seven, but go tell his disciples, and that's the angel telling the women witnesses to tell the male disciples, Jesus is risen. Now, you find later, uh, although the first the women are in shock, as it says in verse eight, if you read on, they, they go and they do tell the disciples, and, and we think that's great, right? No big deal. They went and told the disciples. It really, it, it's such a big deal uh, because we have now these women as the first credible eyewitnesses to the most significant event uh, in history, which in the ancient Jewish culture would have been a crazy idea. Uh, you see, women had no standing in this culture. They had no legal rights. Their testimonies were not even admissible in, in the courtroom. So if the Jewish disciples of Jesus were making this up, and they're trying to spread this movement among, among Jewish culture and, and try to make this appealing and, and, and persuasive to their peers, the last thing they would do is put forth women as primary witnesses while the male disciples are hiding in fear like cowards. Okay. Uh, it's too counter-cultural, counter-intuitive to their culture to, to make this story plausible. Because it would lose credibility immediately to say the first witnesses were women. So why would the disciples write the story this way? The only rational explanation is because it happened this way. They're writing it this way because it happened this way. Here's the fourth piece of data and the last one. The Jewish disciples worshipped Jesus. The Jewish men were the first Christians who worshipped Christ. Here's what Luke tells us and here's what Matthew tells us in their Gospels. While Jesus blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him. Again, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Why is this a big deal? Because G Jewish men during this time considered worshipping a man idolatry and blasphemy, and it was punishable by death. And Jesus, you see, was a man. Uh, Jesus the eternal Son of God, yes, he also became fully man and walked the earth with the disciples. Worshiping a man they ate with, lived with, conversed with would have been unthinkable for, for Jewish people, 
much less someone who was just crucified and, and buried. That would have been the most idolatrous thing. But, but not only do these men worship Jesus, they also begin to publicly proclaim their belief in the resurrected Jesus and say they, that he appeared to them before their Jewish peers at the risk of being put to death. And to suggest that they are doing all of this after stealing his body, knowingly propagating this hoax and taking that lie to their grave, to their martyrdom, that's not a logical storyline. According to them, they're, they're behaving so counterculturally, counterintuitively, when everything against their, it's against their worldview, it's because they saw the resurrected Christ. So even though the resurrection of Jesus was impossible, it was impossible in their worldview, and even immoral given their prior commitments to Judaism to worship a man, they still believed in Jesus' resurrection and worshipped him. And the most rational explanation for that is that they let the evidence counter their prior commitments, and they followed the data where he let them, and they acknowledged that Christ is risen and he is the Son of God. Now, early church history, again, tells us almost all the disciples spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the resurrection of Christ and died terrible deaths because of it. And these men who are once in hiding and trembling in fear, suddenly bravely proclaiming the resurrection of Christ to the point of death. And the question, again, you have to ask is, could a fake story that they made up transform them that way? Uh, Do you know anyone who would die for something they know is a lie? We know people who would just die for a lie because they don't know that it's a lie. They think it's the truth, but, but it's not true. But do you know anyone who would actually knowingly die for a lie? If they knowingly stole the body of Christ, would they knowingly take that to their martyrdom? It doesn't sound rational. Here's something else that really gets me, and that's the historical record of the transformation of Jesus' brothers, namely James and Jude. They used to call Jesus a madman, which is what I would call my brother if he went around claiming to be the son of God, right? And he's crazy. And after disowning him, they turn their backs on him. And suddenly, a few days after he is crucified, they worship him. And if you ask me, what would it take for me to worship? Some of you met my brother. What would it take for you to worship Isaac, your brother? Okay, if he predicted his own death, and that after three days he will rise again, and then he does die, and three days later he does appear to me, I think that will do it. I think I'll worship him then. But until then, he's a crazy man. James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, become apostles of Jesus, again, to their death. They wrote the two epistles in the New Testament, and in there they call Jesus their brother, our Lord, my Lord and Savior. What would have transformed them in this radical way? And the most rational explanation is, the one they themselves give us, they encountered the risen Christ. Now, I'm just, for the sake of time, limiting myself to these four, that, that Jesus Christ really was crucified, his tomb really was empty. It doesn't make sense that his disciples stole the body. The first eyewitnesses were women, and the Jewish disciples suddenly worshipped Jesus. I'm limiting myself to these things for the sake of time, but here's, here's the, the point I want to make for all of us, and that is, Are you letting the data lead you where it should? Are you letting it even challenge your prior commitments in your worldview? Because that would be the rational thing to do. 
right? Unless you have a better explanation for the data, you have to consider the resurrection of Christ to be the best rational explanation for these things. And it's not enough to simply say, I don't care, right? If it was, if it was a, a legendary account, you can say that, but at some point, we got to acknowledge, okay, did, we have to acknowledge things like, did World War II really happen? Did the Holocaust really happen? That matters in how we live our lives today. Did the resurrection of Christ, did this man walk out of his own grave? I don't know if there's a, any more important question to investigate than that and to determine that for yourself. And you got to begin with the data. Where does the data lead you? And are you rational enough to let it challenge your prior commitments? Okay. If you want to grab coffee, talk more about that. Let's do that. All right. Point number two. Um, this story is not just significant because it, it's historically reliable and rational to believe in. More importantly, it gives us a hopeful basis to seek after Jesus like he's still alive. Um, the point, this point will be a short one. If you look at verse 6 again, you notice the word seek appears there. Okay? And he said to them, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. And the Greek word there for seek is zeteo. I looked it up in the, the Greek dictionary for you. You're welcome. Zateo, the, the other meaning for that word, for seek, is to desire. To desire. So the verse can be read, do not be alarmed, you desire Jesus of Nazareth, he's not here. And then comes the other very important word after that, and that is see. A very similar word, but a little different. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. And that's the word ida, which means to look or behold. Okay? And it appears again in verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. The same word there, to look and behold. This is a constantly recurring theme in the scriptures. Okay? If you seek after him, if you desire him, you will see him. You will look upon him and you will behold him. If you seek him, you will find him. And that's what Scripture is all about. The Bible is not given to us so we would know God just on a rational level, but on a relational level, not on the level of knowing about him, even, even considering him to be true, reliable, historically, but desiring him from the heart. The Bible says the devil knows God on a rational level. The devil believes all that the Bible says is historically reliable. The devil knows a lot of things about God, but the devil doesn't desire him. If we go beyond knowing about to seeking after him as if he is really there, then the Bible says God will reveal himself to you. And we have to take that next step. Okay? Having established some rational basis for trusting in this account, okay, you're not a crazy person for thinking this is rational. You've got to go beyond that to desiring him and seeking after him. Trusting in his promise that he will reveal himself to you. Now, the Bible also says God is spirit. Is it reasonable then to seek after God who is spirit through some spiritual means like reading the Bible, praying, going to church, talking to some Christians? I think so, right? Because God is spirit, it would probably take some spiritual means of interacting with him. Uh, some of you know I grew up in Hong Kong as a missionary's kid. Uh, what do you think was the first thing that my parents had to do in order to work as missionaries in Hong Kong? Learn to speak Cantonese, right? Learn to speak the language. They had to go from Annyeonghaseyo to Lehoma, Sekjofan Mea. Okay. I'm not cussing you out. That's 
have you eaten in, in Cantonese? You gotta switch. You gotta switch your lingo a bit, so that you can be accessing the people there, right? That you're you're trying to access, right? What do you do if you want to reach the people in Hong Kong? You you learn Cantonese. What do you do if you want to draw near to God? You learn the Word. You you open the Bible. You get into the Scriptures. You have to switch your lingo a little bit as you seek after God. As you hope, you're, as you are hopeful that you will find Him. So I want to encourage you with that. Just start with reading the Bible, and start with the Gospel of John. Investigate it, read it, think about it. I'd be happy to read it with you if you like. Um, help you understand it chapter by chapter. Okay, I'll even you know pay for the coffee. Or start with coming to church, or an, going to any church, a Bible believing church, and beginning to interact on a spiritual level with God as well and not just on the rational level, okay? Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He predicted his own death and resurrection. Was he lying? Was he crazy? Or was he telling the truth? Right? The gospel tells us he he was telling the truth. And if you seek him, you will find him. All right, last point. Uh, this is more of a response, which is a changed life lived meaningfully for Jesus. If it is his death that forgives you of your sins, and it is his resurrection that gives you eternal life, the conclusion is inevitable. You are not your own. Right? If you believe that, you are not your own. You belong to him. This is what believing in Jesus and being baptized into Jesus principally means. It means to call Jesus your Savior and your Lord. It's to serve him as your master because he saved you. And let me tell you why that is good news, that he is master over you. Why that could be good news. This is good news because this is what we were made for. We were made to live for God, for his glory, and not for self-glory. The world thinks it's, it's a great idea to, to live for self-glory, but the Bible says the opposite. It says sin is what makes us addicted to self-glory and cause us to therefore malfunction. How? When we live for self-glory, then we, live, we have to live for the rest of our lives obsessed with one, one thing. What, what is that? Proving our self-worth to others. We have to justify our existence to others. We have to be good enough before others. And what happens when we treat our work, our studies, our relationships, possessions as things we, we do to prove to other people how good we are, how acceptable we are, how, how successful we are? That's when we become slaves to people's opinions. That is when we become anxious. That is when we become fearful of our future. That is when we become controlling. We become competitive and treat people as, as competitors. That is when we become workaholics. And that's when we're tired, we escape to things that addict us rather than benefit us. Sin fixes our attention on self-glory, and that attentiveness to self-glory causes us to malfunction. It's not how we were designed. But what happens when all of our hearts, our minds, and our bodies become devoted not to self-glory, but to the glory of God? The glory of the one who saved me by his grace and by a love that I didn't earn or deserve. Then we're freed from the burden of having to go out and prove ourselves worthy 
prove ourselves worthy of being loved and accepted by the world. Because Jesus has proven his love for you by his death and resurrection. And that's, that's all you need. All the work is done. It is finished. We can know that we're loved, know that we're accepted, not based on our performance, but his. He becomes, therefore, our glory. He becomes our self-worth. He becomes life itself. I belong to him. And that makes you free. Free to live meaningfully. Christians are free. Christians are free to live their lives, not to please people and therefore become lorded over by people or live in the fear of people, but to please God, free to please him, free to be lorded over by him, free to be captivated by his glory, behold his glory, so they can remain in God's love and therefore love others. You can go to others to love them, not to please them. And there's a difference. You can go to serve them, not to be served by them. You're living to give and not to get. Why? This is the only way. This is the only way you can live this meaningful life, is if you've been given Christ and his death and resurrection on your behalf. If you've received that, the rest of your life becomes a life of giving, living for the service of God. When we live for Jesus, we find the most meaningful way to live in the here and now. Because in Jesus, you have eternal life, eternal acceptance, eternal love. And, and that means the life you now live. You can live to give, not to get. You can live to serve, not to be served. And that's the kind of life that deep down inside we all want to live. We just don't know how. For some reason, as much as we want to live a selfless, generous, giving life, we become selfish, self-absorbed, self-centered. Why? We have not dealt with the problem of sin. We have not been forgiven of our sins, and we have not been comforted by being all-known, all-loved by our Savior. So receive this good news. Hear this good news and live the kind of life that God wants you to live, and deep down inside, you yourself want to live. It's rational to live that way because Jesus is alive. It's hopeful to live this way because you can always seek after him and you will find him. And it's meaningful to live this way because all that you need has been given to you and promised to you. Now you can give it all away. We're waiting for a better country anyway. This is all temporary. And we can consider everything in life, our wealth, our health, our accomplishments, as temporary things, okay to give away. It's okay not to hoard. It's okay not to live a better life at the expense of others, but to better others at the expense of myself. It's okay to live that way. You're free to live that way. Why? You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. How do we enter this better country, this eternal country? By receiving the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, the Bible says, you and your household. I want to encourage you to continue to search after him. Uh, whether you are wrestling with the, the rational aspect of this, I'd love to speak with you. Whether you're wrestling with the the hopeful aspect of this, right, and you don't quite see the hopefulness in seeking after him, I'd love to 
wrestle with that in that with you, or if you're struggling with the the last fact of just finding the meaning of your life in Jesus Christ, I'd love to sit down and chat with you about that. Wherever you are, don't do nothing. Uh, come to some verdict about who Jesus is. Come to some verdict about whether he is a liar, he's a madman, or he is the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and uh, this Easter um, to really celebrate something that gives us hope in this brokenness that we live in right now, uh, even during this pandemic, when death is all around us. We have a reason to sing and celebrate because you have conquered death. And that gives us, Lord, new meaning to what we do. We can love as if love will not end. We can heal as if all will be healed. We can do justice as if justice will reign forever. We can live meaningfully because Christ is alive. And everything he said, therefore, are true. Help us to search after him. And wherever we may be in our journey, uh, I pray that, Lord, you will not uh, leave us in that and that you would encourage us to take that next step in, in asking the questions, whether it's, whether it's doubts or whether it's uh, struggles. Lord, whatever it may be, uh, help us to uh, be proactive in seeking after you. Uh, trusting that you will reveal yourself to us. Uh, we thank you uh, that you continue to speak, that you continue to reveal yourself through your word. Um, help us to speak your language too. Help us to uh, read your word. Help us to pray to you and come into a relationship with you. And I ask that you would do all these things by the help of your Holy Spirit, whom you've given to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.